welcome to episode 6 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 22nd and 23rd of September 2020. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. As ever, I'm joined on the Fire Safety Matters podcast by my colleague Mark Sennett, the CEO of Western Business Media. Hi, Mark. Morning, Brian. Yeah, I'm good. Uh, how are you this morning? Very well, thanks, Mark. So, as always, we go straight into the news this week. And do you mind if I go first this week, Brian? I've got a really great story that you've written up that I'd really like to cover. The story is three quarters of fire doors failed safety inspections in 2019. So some new statistics that have come out from the fire door inspection scheme says 76% of fire doors they inspected in 2019 were condemned as not being fit for purpose. In addition, 63% of those buildings inspected also had additional fire safety issues. So this data refers to over 100,000 inspections conducted across 2,700 buildings in the UK. And it also highlights the challenges with fire door installation. 30% of fire doors nationwide were condemned due to poor installation, with problems including excessive gaps around the doors and the use of non-compatible foam. So FDIS scheme manager Louise Hatton commented on this. Louise said... The buildings that our inspectors visit include sleeping accommodation and also buildings that house the elderly, the disabled and people with mobility or cognitive needs. In other words, some of the most vulnerable in our society. The latest data that the majority of fire doors, it shows that they're not fit for purpose. This paints a very worrying picture of fire safety in many of the UK's buildings and one that we must all play a role in changing for the better to help improve lives. Well, Brian, this is a truly shocking statistic, isn't it? Three quarters of fire doors failed inspections. I mean, I'm staggered by that statistic. And when we think about just how vital it is to protect vulnerable people, as Louise Holton said there, just shocking. There's no excuse for it, is there? It is, Mark. And the data also suggests that 57% of installed fire doors inspected needed small-scale maintenance of some kind, with the top three reasons for failures, including excessive gaps, smoke ceiling issues and poorly adjusted door closers, which would prevent a given fire doors from performing a design to hold back the spread of a fire. Of those buildings inspected, nearly a quarter of fire doors that were third-party certificated were correctly installed and maintained, while 40% of third-party certificated fire doors were condemned due to poor maintenance. And a further 36% are the result of both poor installation and poor maintenance. That doesn't make for good reading at all, Mark. There literally is no good news in this news story, is there, Brian? Literally nothing positive. The only positive I can take from it is that this issue has been raised. I mean, credit to the fire door inspection scheme for showing how bad this is. And now there really needs to be enforcement action taken on on relevant parties that aren't up to scratch. And, you know, obviously prosecutions in these sense often comes from the fire and rescue service. So not good news, but hopefully this is something we can all learn from. Now, Brian, you've also got another story you want to cover this week. What was it you wanted to touch on? Yes, Mark, we've covered a lot on the website recently about the cladding issue. On the third anniversary of the Glenville Tower Fire, apparently there are still 2,000 high-risk residential buildings wrapped in some form of dangerous cladding. Uh, The Housing Communities and Local Government Committee has published a report now that finds fixing fire safety defects in such buildings could cost anything up to £15 billion, not an inconsiderable amount of money. The detailed and somewhat glamming report, which is entitled Cladding the Progress of Remediation, is calling on the Conservative government to pay what the committee refers to as the exorbitant costs of temporary safety measures 
that are currently being met by what are referred to as blameless leaseholders and for the government to take legal action against building owners who have been seen to drag their heels. In addition, the committee has warned that the £1 billion cutting monies recently announced by the government will cover only a third of the identified high-risk tower blocks in England. Indeed, referencing that building safety fund, the committee suggests that stringent rules on applying such as the short application window and restrictions against social housing providers do risk leaving many unable to access vital funding. The committee is also of the firm view that the building safety fund should also be increased to address all fire safety defects in every high-risk residential structure, which could potentially cost up to the aforementioned total of £15 billion. And the committee wants the government to ensure all buildings of any height with aluminium composite material, that's ACM cladding, attached are fully remediated of all fire safety defects by December 2021. And that buildings with other defects, including non-ACM cladding, be remediated by June 2022. The committee is also calling for any residential building where works have not commenced by December this year to be subject to what's called a compulsory purchase order. There's a stated desire to see a new national body created that can step in when councils are unable or unwilling to act. And according to the committee, a hard line, in inverted commas, should be taken against slow-moving building owners with compulsory purchase orders allowing councils or the government to take direct ownership of the freehold of those buildings, demonstrating serious fire safety defects. Building owners themselves have a legal responsibility, of course, to keep the residents safe. And while the government has seen positive action from some, it's clear that more needs to be done to protect tenants. The committee's chair is a chap called Clive Betts, and he stated, and I quote, it's time for the government to commit to end the scourge of dangerous cladding once and for all, a piecemeal approach that will see homeowners facing many more years of stress and financial hardship is not an option. Well, when I look at that, Brian, you know, again, there's not a lot of good news in there in terms of the severity of the situation. But the government has, from this building fund, made a lot of money available to do remedial work on this. When you talk about compulsory land purchase orders, they, they are very, very difficult and time consuming to get through. There'll be legal challenges. I think my hope is that they put as much pressure as they can on landlords to do these changes themselves. Obviously, with social housing, the government's going to help fund it. But I can see long and lengthy legal battles and expensive legal battles ahead with the compulsory um, purchase orders. So, I would say enforcement action is probably a better route to go down, in my personal opinion, if people aren't complying. And that comes back to our previous story where we talked about proactive enforcement. So it's great the government are making these funds available, but it's a very, very delicate period in our economic history at the moment. And there's going to be pressures from all sides, as we'll discuss later, for where funds need to be allocated. So one to keep an eye on, in my opinion, Brian, but there are upsides and downsides to the plans there for sure. Our first guest on this edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Peter Aldridge. Peter is the General Secretary of the National Association of Healthcare Fire Officers and also General Manager of Estates, Fire Safety and Security at the Leeds Teaching Hospitals NHS Trust. I chatted with Peter about numerous topics, among them CPD and the impact of COVID-19 on the role of fire safety managers operating within the NHS. First, though, we discussed the key remit of the National Association of Healthcare Fire Officers. Peter, thanks very much for joining us this morning. In a pro bono capacity, you serve as General Secretary of the National Association of Healthcare Fire Officers. For the benefit of those readers of Fire Safety Matters who are not familiar with the association, could you please outline how the organisation is structured and explain its key role and remit, please? 
Yes, uh, good morning, Brian. The National Association of Healthcare Fire Officers is a professional association that is is made up of fire safety advisors who predominantly work in the NHS healthcare sector. Although we do have members from private healthcare and indeed from local authority fire and rescue services, the objective of the association is to try to have the highest standards of fire safety within uh, healthcare premises, whether that be hospitals, which is the mainstay of the association's membership, but also residential care areas, community healthcare settings, doctor's surgeries, dental surgeries and the like. And through promoting the highest standards of healthcare fire safety, it's to keep patients safe from fire and its effects. The way that the association is made up is it's split into regions across the UK and we're also in discussion with colleagues from Southern Ireland about establishing a branch in Southern Ireland. Each of the areas of the UK are represented on a national platform and locally across those regions um, there are branches that meet up usually once every two months, where they will have part of an agenda is around CPD, part of it is around a business meeting of that of that local group, where they'll look at local incidents uh, in terms of fires, national issues that, uh, that are going on, such as COVID at the moment, and the fire safety response to that within healthcare. Altogether, we have around 300 members, which is pretty representative of almost every NHS trust across the United Kingdom. And as I say, we've got colleagues from Southern Ireland, from the health boards there, uh, who are also looking to join us. It's pretty much about sharing information, sharing best practice, and making sure that we promote the highest standards of fire safety within healthcare. Moving on now to the day job, Peter, and your role as Fire Safety Manager at the Leeds Teaching Hospitals NHS Trust. What impact has the COVID-19 pandemic exerted on the general role of fire safety managers operating on behalf of the NHS, do you feel? Well, I think we've heard clinical colleagues talk about the different phases of COVID and the government in the national response to it have talked about the different phases that we're entering. So I think to use that national theme of phases, I think it's been pretty much the same for us in the fire safety world. That The first phase was about activity from an intensive care point of view ramping up in hospitals. Um, so we, we were potentially going to be seeing some of our most critically ill patients within areas of hospitals that weren't necessarily designed for intensive care. So there were lots of issues around fire evacuation. Do we look at a stay-put policy, firefighting equipment, all the things that we might look at for an intensive care unit having to be in other areas of hospitals that weren't necessarily designed for the acuity of the patient that would be within them. There was also the issue around areas of hospitals being opened up to clinical care that weren't necessarily clinical care at the moment. So it was that phasing up of our activity to meet the expected numbers of patients that the statistics suggested that we may have to deal with within the acute care setting. Once the sort of phase of patients being admitted into hospitals was seen, we then had to deal with things around staff being able to treat the patients. So there was a lot more around things like alcohol hand gel being used in areas that it may not necessarily always be used in. Does that pose a risk of uh, of fire to us? Putting in measures to create barriers for staff social distancing were also things that we had to start to consider. Putting piped oxygen supplies into areas to 
treat patients that we may not necessarily have had piped oxygen supplies in there before. The use of cylinders and things in mental health about, you know, some of the patients who had COVID maybe uh, within bedrooms. So there was the issue around putting oxygen and, and increased numbers of, of alcohol dispensers within areas that don't necessarily have them. And then as we now enter the recovery phase, phase of trying to get hospitals back to normal and the lockdown starts to open up a little bit more and we're getting people back into work, again, this phase is more around looking at the social distancing, putting barriers in, flows into buildings, so maybe using fire exits to for people to flow out of buildings. Does the provision of barriers mean that we're starting to affect fire exits? We've also had lots of discussions around people wanting to wedge fire doors open so people are not touching them um, on a frequent basis and those touch points become a risk of cross-contamination. So that's how uh, how my experience and talking to colleagues nationally have been sort of a snapshot of some of the issues that we've dealt with um, on a day-to-day basis over COVID. And following on from that, Peter, you were involved in work relating to the 500-bed NHS Nightingale Hospital located at the Harrogate Convention Centre. That was opened back in April, of course, and it's now going to remain open apparently until the end of July. What was your role in setting up the facility and what do you feel have been the learning outcomes to date? So in my day job as the general manager for estates here at Leeds teaching hospitals, I was asked to lead on the estates and facilities function as the head of the work stream for the Nightingale over at Harrogate. And that work stream included the fire safety team that were putting the provisions in place. I think one of the biggest challenges over the Nightingale at Harrogate is that we were going into what is effectively a convention centre and turn it into a hospital that was capable of dealing with up to 500 level three intensive care patients and in doing that providing the safest possible environments for the patients that were going to be housed within there and indeed the staff that were going to be working there. So it was about understanding what the function of Nightingale was going to be in terms of the level of care of the patients, understanding what the existing building had in terms of fire safety features, what did we need to put in there as part of the construction phase to address issues such as means of escape, early warning detection in the event of fire, the potential for oxygen-enriched atmospheres, what does the fire evacuation strategy look like for the different areas that patients were going to be housed in, staff training and was the level of training that we had to provide for staff going to be different from that that we would provide within an acute hospital that was purpose-built for delivering that type of care. So there was a whole raft of issues from a fire safety point of view that we needed to look at and then of course make sure that the risk assessment for the premises reflected all of the changes that we'd made, any derogations were documented and have an agreement between the fire service building control and NHS England and NHSI to ensure that the the area that we were providing was a safe area with regards to fire safety uh, for the purposes that it was intended for. And the government's fire safety standards, the NHS, briefly mentioned but don't commit to the installation of sprinklers, Peter. The guidance also repeatedly states that where sprinklers are used, other fire prevention measures may be reduced for the purposes of cost effectiveness. Where do you stand on this issue? 
I think in terms of sprinklers, the the national debate has always been the benefits of sprinklers in any premises and hospitals have to be included in that. And the there's been a lot of work done over the years in dispelling the myths of sprinklers in the sense that every sprinkler head goes off if there's a fire and, you know, if somebody lights to light to the sprinklers will operate and the damage you get to the building. So I think a lot of the discussion and debate that we've had over sprinklers to dispel some of those myths has got us to a good point in the sense of we are seeing the use of sprinklers commercially probably more used, but there is still a reluctance in some parts of healthcare for sprinklers to be provided. And I think it's absolutely essential that, that, that fire safety experts, whether they be fire safety advisors from healthcare, whether they'd be designers involved in the, the, the initial stages of the design and development of hospitals, are very clear what their strategy and thought processes with regards to sprinklers. So if we're going to build a new hospital or we're going to extend in a hospital and we're not going to put sprinklers in there, I think it's an absolute essential part of the fire safety strategy to clearly document why that thought process is. Because I think by having that clear thought process of not putting sprinklers in there could in some way go to benefit the argument of actually why we shouldn't put them in there. Because the more we consider it, the more we debate it, I think there'll be a greater understanding of the potential benefits that sprinklers bring within a healthcare environment. And the true effects of things like, you know, if we don't put them in because there's a concern over the risk of Legionella, that we have those debates and we move forward and we get to a clear understanding of why it is that sprinklers may not be decided uh, to be a critical aspect of new hospital builds. I think in terms of compensatory features or derogation from, from, from HTM standards, if you do fit sprinklers, I know one of the discussions that certainly I've had in the past with, with, with architects and designers is that there's no benefit to putting sprinklers in sometimes because we still require all of the other features we would want if we didn't have sprinklers. And I think there's an argument as well both ways for that in the sense of if a sprinkler system does go down for any period of time then we're still left with the very high risk of patients where we might need progressive horizontal evacuation and as such sub compartments so the compartment sizes can't necessarily be increased because of the levels of care of patients within but then the other side of the argument is that if you have a sprinkler system that is correctly designed correctly installed and more in importantly, correctly serviced after the initial installation, then should the argument of being worried about allowing derogations against sprinkler be as, as prolific? So my view is that healthcare should embrace the use of sprinklers more. There should be more of a debate in the design stage around new hospitals builds and you know if we listen to some of the announcements we've had the announcements of six new hospitals being built and we're also there has been some reports in 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 the news that part of the recovery from covid there may be more builds around the nhs then i think it is essential that we embrace the discussion in a positive light around the use of sprinklers but the critical thing is whether we use them or we don't is the documentation of it in the fire safety strategy why the decision was made uh, as to which way we go. A membership of the National Association of Healthcare Fire Officers allows practitioners to gain CPD points, Peter. What are your views on continuing professional development and why do you feel that ongoing learning and instruction is so vital for today's fire safety practitioners? I think 
CPD is essential because it's a way of fire safety advisors and people working within healthcare fire safety to keep up to date on what some of the latest innovations are um, out there on the market, whether that be emergency lighting, whether it be fire alarm systems, whether it be methods of fire stopping, whatever it is, there is, I think, what we need to do is we need to keep abreast of what the latest technologies and latest methods are that allow us to do the job in the most current and relevant standard. I think we've had some very high profile discussions with regards to fire safety over the last few years. Grenfell is obviously one of the most prolific examples of that and the learning points that come from that, the thoughts, the ideologies, without having uh, the ability to access CPDs and some form of structured learning that portrays the facts of some of these events, I think it's difficult for people to keep up with what's going on. I think from a fire safety point of view from COVID, some of the learning that we will undoubtedly pick up around some of the changes that we've had to make very quickly to deal with a national pandemic, you know, how we capture those and how we deliver some of those learning, I think is better done through a structured CPD system rather than us doing it through an email between two or three members where we may get views and opinions which are absolutely valuable and can be used to some extent towards people's self-learning and self-certification in a way for CPD. But I think a structured approach to learning has got to be of value as we move forward because the one thing that the last few months have shown us is we never really know what's around the corner and fire safety will always have to make an adaptation in some way, shape or form. So structured learning through CPD is something I think that we as an association should be fully supportive of. And going forward, Peter, what are the key goals to be achieved by the National Association, both in the short and longer terms? I think the key thing for us is to, our overriding objective is to have the highest standards of, of, of fire safety within healthcare. We were well on the way in terms of our discussions, in terms of what happens after Grenfell, particularly around things like accreditation of fire risk assessors, and we had quite an active debate ongoing around that. But then, as with many things, COVID has, has diverted not only us as an association, but also some of the key players in who we was having those discussions with. So I think one of the key things for us over the next few months is to uh, to revisit the discussion around accreditation for fire risk assessors in healthcare. I think having the right people within the right roles within healthcare and the right educational opportunities is a priority for us. And I think one of the things that we as an association have probably not been particularly prolific with over the last few years is our presence on social media. And I think one of the benefits from COVID is that we have been forced in all avenues of life to use social media more, to use platforms like um, Teams, uh, Zoom, Skype, whatever it may be. So I think we can probably have a little bit more of a focus on our social uh, our social media presence rather than social distancing as we come out of that um, because it is a good opportunity to do things quickly and to have a live debate rather than maybe arranging a meeting that maybe not going to take place for a couple of weeks or or months so I think you know there's some of the key things that uh, I think we want to focus on over the next um, 
next few months as we come out of COVID and start looking at our recovery plan. Three years after the Grenfell Tower fire, a third of fire and rescue services would still not be sending sufficient resources to high-rise fires. That's according to new data produced by the Fire Brigades Union. Residents face what the FBE refers to as a postcode lottery of response, with huge variations between fire brigades' predetermined attendance levels. That's the number of fire engines initially sent to a high-rise fire. Apparently, PDA levels range from up to 10 fire engines and a high-reaching aerial appliance in London, down to as few as two A fire engines and an aerial appliance in North Wales. The FBU has called out what it references as the scandal that national minimum standards have still not been set for fire and rescue service response to such fires. UK fire and rescue services were subject to national standards for most of the post-war era, but these were scrapped back in 2004. 25 of the UK's fire and rescue services have increased their high-rise PDA since July 2017, while 19 have seen no change. The PDA levels in two fire and rescue services have actually worsened. Since the Grenfell Tower blaze, there have been at least eight significant fires in London, Bolton, Crewe and Belfast, aided by serious building safety failings. On average, more resources are mobilised to high-rise fires in London and the south-east of England, while fewer resources are mobilised in the West Midlands, the north-east and the north-west of England, Wales and Northern Ireland. 84% of fire brigades plan to mobilise an aerial appliance to all high-rise fires, that number rises to 98% when factoring in certain circumstances, such as if a building is known to have flammable cladding attached. Many fire and rescue services no longer have a dedicated crew for the aerial ladder platforms, meaning that the high-reaching appliances are not always available. The FBU informed the Prime Minister of this issue way back in 2017. Earlier this year, Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary and Fire and Rescue Services warned that there was unjustifiable variation in the level of service residents can expect from their fire and rescue service. The FBU has stated that firefighters will not accept another year of inaction when it comes to building safety. The trade union has called for an end to what it calls a politics that values profits over people. Strong words indeed, Mark. It's really interesting, Brian. There's a lot of politics in this segment and going into the next news story as well. The FBU have been very, very good at lobbying the government. We know this government is not its government of choice. That's for sure. And I have very steep sympathy for, for the angle they're, go, they're going down. But we're at a time where we've come out of austerity, the economy's grown, and now we're in a situation where we're faced by a pandemic. And, and if you don't mind, can I, can I move us on to the next story, which is very relevant to this from a political point of view, Brian? Are you all right with that? That's fine, Mark. Okay, well, this this is one that I'm kind of going to get on my soapbox a little bit here, Brian, so strap, strap yourself in. The London Fire Brigade is facing significant budget shortfall, warns the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. Sadiq has issued a stark warning that he'll be left with no other choice than to make significant cuts to London Fire Brigade unless the government urgently acts to support local and regional authorities across the UK. The Mayor has called on the government ministers to keep their promise that there will be no ear of austerity as a result of the coronavirus, warning that the failure to act now would undermine the government's efforts to transform London Fire Brigade in the aftermath of the Grenfell Tower fire, and also it's pledged 2,000 new police officers, but it's a separate issue. Overall, the GLA group faces a forecasted budget shortfall of £493 million over the next two years as a result of the unprecedented loss of business rates and council tax caused by COVID-19. 
This is in addition to significant emergency costs incurred by GLA Group throughout schemes to support Londoners during the pandemic. Mayor Carner said that these cuts would come at the worst possible time. The mayor said these cuts would come at the worst possible time when there is a need for investment in London Fire Brigade, but it's making changes following the Grenfell fire tragedy. Carnes warned that these cuts would hamper the recovery efforts to boost the economy, support jobs and invest in skills. Well, Brian, here we go. I'm going to get on my soapbox right here. No one can deny that you want to have a most effective fire service as possible. I can completely understand the want for further investment after the Grenfell Tower tragedy. Completely understands where Mayor Khan's coming from on this. But for him to try and play politics right now in the middle of a pandemic, this isn't something that sits well with me. We've got frontline workers that's lives at risk. All of our lives are at risk from a pandemic, particularly frontline workers. Yeah, of course, firefighters, but but the NHS staff. We're having to put more and more funding than ever into the NHS, understandably so. We have got a furlough scheme and the government effectively helping keep people in jobs across the country. Something that we've never seen in the world before. We've seen a record drop, in eco- bigger than a normal recession, how, how far trade has been down. It's been absolutely cataclysmic to this economy, what this pandemic has done. And the government is doing all that it can do, or you could argue maybe not enough, depends which politically inclination that you've got, to try and keep people safe, keep businesses going. So there are wider issues than just the London Fire And it feels to me like Sadiq Khan has used this opportunity saying, don't you dare go back to an area of austerity. Well, at some point, right, Brian, the books are going to have to balance. We all know that it's not money for nothing what we're getting from furlough and further investment in the NHS. We're going to have to pay for this as citizens or business owners at, at some place. But those comments about the end of an era of austerity are over were made before this pandemic. And at some point, we are unfortunately going to have to look at what we can afford as an economy. So it feels to me right now, Brian, this is not the time to be asking for more money for the fire and rescue service. I'm not saying it doesn't need it, but it feels right now it's a really insensitive time to be pushing that agenda to score political points. Yes, I understand the need for more funding, but at what expense, Brian? We don't have an endless money pit that we can go to um, from government funding. We don't. So... Yeah, that's that's my take on it, Brian. And and at this point, I want to move back on to a more legal perspective. I had a really interesting conversation with our regular guest, Warren Spencer. Warren, as many of you know, comes on every edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, and he's done more prosecutions than anybody else under the fire safety order. We covered a range of things, including some questions that came in from some readers. And if you do want to get your questions in the future to Warren, please use the hashtag FSM podcast. And as we've just covered all the news, if you want to see all the latest news, check our website on a daily basis, which is fsmatters.com. But moving back to Warren, I sat down with him early today, and here's what he had to say. Morning, Warren. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, Mark. I'm uh, trying to get things back to normal. Slow work coming out of restrictions, but uh, we're getting there. So we'll talk about um, the state of play for prosecutions under COVID-19 in a minute. But actually, I want to bring something really close to home to you. We reported a couple of weeks back that about a prosecution in Blackpool, which is obviously where your practice is, and it was to do with the prosecution of a company called Cornhill Hotel, which is uh, located on the promenade in Blackpool. 
they were handed down a nine-month sentence suspended for 18 months for fire safety breaches at the premises. Are you familiar with this case, Warren? Yes, this case has been re reported. It's a, it's a local uh, Lancashire fire rescue um, case and uh, involved a hotel, uh, which many in Blackpool turn into almost um, DWP houses of multiple occupancy. And uh, this was last year, so nothing to do with the lockdown. Um, taking in long-term guests uh, instead of short-term guests on holiday and fire service do an inspection issue pro prohibition notice uh, prohibition notice largely ignored and um, I think that's why there was a custodial sentence because of the numerous breaches of the prohibition notice yeah when we cover the case you know there was a number of things in the prosecution case file failing to make a suitable sufficient risk assessment failing to make and give effect to such agreements where appropriate for the planning organization controlling and monitoring and review of preventative fire safety measures failing to provide adequate firefighting equipment fire detectors and alarm systems failing to ensure that escape routes and exits could be used properly failing to comply with the prohibition notice just as you said and failing to provide adequate and sufficient fire safety training to members of staff so I want to move on to something that we were discussing a couple of weeks ago, you and I. You said to me that it's a strange time right now, due to COVID-19, that a number of cases are being adjourned for obvious reasons, they're just not being heard in the court, and you weren't sure when they were going to be heard, and the concern you also had, you said to me, was that enforcement action in terms of inspectors from fire and rescue services are just not out and about because of COVID-19, so that could have a knock-on effect to a real reduction in prosecutions looking forward. But I think from when we were speaking earlier this morning, it's been a little bit of a movement the last couple of weeks, hasn't there, for you? There's been uh, more cases starting to, to come forwards. Yes, it, it's, it, it's a, an unusual time because fire protection departments have been largely working from home for a period, um, so no inspections taking place. Obviously, this is not the time to go into buildings that you're not familiar with to do inspections. So inspections on the on the back burner. Cases that are presently before the courts are not being dealt with very quickly, if at all. And certainly fire safety cases, which are regulatory cases as far as the courts are concerned. So amongst the less serious, uh, whilst anybody involved in regulatory law and um, enforcement of fire safety cases, health and safety cases, do not consider these cases to be any less serious than any other case. They certainly are dealt with less urgently by the courts because the defendants are, are usually not in custody. They're not urgent because they've got people in custody because most all crime defendants get bail. So on that basis, the courts are simply adjourning. If you get, if we get a case before the magistrates' court, the magistrates' courts are simply adjourning. I've had about three cases where the court said your, your case has been adjourned to July or August, but don't come in July or August because it won't be going ahead. It will be further adjourned. Cases that are before the Crown Court are pretty much the same, especially regulatory cases. And the Crown Courts are hearing very, very few trials. So if there's a not guilty plea, there is going to be a very, very long delay because the courts now, they're hearing the odd trial, but they're taking up, say, three courtrooms to hear one trial. And that means less courts available to hear trials, etc. So the court process 
is going to be a long road for any enforcement of fire safety cases in the future. And, and uh, unfortunately, fire safety cases will be the, the least priority in the future. Can I ask you a question of your, your opinion on, on this? You know, obviously, taking enforcement cases forward, being proactive in terms of enforcement, is really meant to act as a great deterrent to people that are flouting fire safety laws. Do you have the fear that if there isn't many proactive inspections going on right now by fire and rescue services, and as you said, the knock-on effect will be a you know, reduction in prosecutions in, in future because of this in the short term, do you worry that this will actually mean that this deterrent isn't there as much and we could see more risks as a result do you think there should be even in this situation more proactive enforcement more proactive inspections well there's always a lag between an inspection and a prosecution so the effects of the lack of inspections that will not be felt for a while this happened after grenfell because a, a large number of fire safety officers were assisting in dealing with the cladding issue rather than inspecting for enforcement purposes. So there was a, that kind of lag after the, the Grenfell disaster. But the other consequence of uh, fire officers being work, working from home and not being able to inspect buildings is that the cases that were in existence before COVID-19, they are being brought along and, and progressed. So I am receiving a number of cases, both defence and prosecutions, through because they've been finalised during this two, three-month period where they've had the time to put things together and, and gather evidence, etc. So although there may be a lag in the future because of lack of enforcement for, say, a three- to six-month period, uh, sorry, lack of inspections for a three- to six-month period, Cases might be hitting the courts at that time, so getting a lot of publicity. So we'll have the effect of persuading people to comply with fire safety measures by seeing people getting sentences. So we've had a question come in from a listener. And anybody else who wants to send in future questions to Warren, just go onto Twitter or LinkedIn and use the hashtag FSM podcast. So this question comes in and he said, many mortgage lenders are now asking for EWS1 forms for flats in blocks of all sizes. The form specifically says that it's not for buildings over 18 metres tall or where the specific fire safety concerns. Could we have clarification on when the form is appropriate and whether this should be recommended from the fire risk assessment? Well, this is not a legal requirement. This is a requirement of the lenders. They're the people that are lending their money so they can set their own agendas for how the information is put to them so that they can decide upon whether to lend money. It's not necessarily a legal question. It's certainly more work for fire risk assessors and work that should legitimately be charged for. There are cases that I'm, I am fully aware of where they have been asked for in buildings which I would consider the fire safety order not to apply because they may be a wall that, that's between two residential premises that are not shared, um, that are not covered or not covered by the fire safety order at all. But if that's what the lender wants, then that's what the lender gets. And then this is an opportunity to fire risk assessors to say, well, we've got to charge more for these these forms to be filled in and, and their clients must pay for those those fees. So is it, in some ways, it's an opportunity. In others, um, it may well be superfluous to the fire safety order, but if people want to borrow money and the institutions are saying this is what we require, that's what that's what is required. So, 
as we always say, you can get questions in future to Warren using the hashtag FSM podcast. But Warren, if people want to get in touch with you in the meantime, how can they do so? Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Blackhurst Bud, Fire Safety Law website. Um, I'm, I'm working at the moment, so it's not as though I'm in any kind of furlough. Um, I'm always happy to help if I can. Brilliant. Thanks, Warren. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Mark. this time around is Craig Halford. Craig is the Managing Director of Jacktone Products, the manufacturer of fire safety and signage solutions. In the April 2020 edition of Fire Safety Matters, Craig penned an excellent article for us on the subject of solution compliance with product safety directives. Mark revisits some of that content with Craig and also ascertains what's been happening at Jacktone during the coronavirus crisis. Morning, Craig. How are you? Yes, good, uh, Mark. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us today. Obviously, we've known each other a, a fair while, and I'm, I'm very familiar with Jack Tone, but it's been a busy couple of years for you guys. For those that aren't familiar with Jack Tone, can you tell us about some of the products you've had come out on the market in the last couple of years? Yeah, well, I mean, um, we have a sort of a core range of products built around sort of fire extinguishers, fire blankets, uh, fire and safety signage, and automatic fire suppression systems. So, we, we tend to de- we obviously developing products in all of those areas. I mean, a particular note, we've um, launched a water mist fire extinguisher, which has been quite well received. And we've also the big area that we we sort of pushed into over the last few years is is in the area of automatic fire suppression under our PAPS brand. There's lots of applications that we can protect uh, with that, which. Uh, Broadly speaking, come under the category of small enclosures and small local applications. I mean, for example, we developed um, an electric cabinet system certified to LPS 66 um, using Novit which we are an OEM approved um, user by 3M. Um, and incidentally, we were the first company in the world to be approved for that new standard when it was launched in 2017. Yeah, we've developed a, a commercial kitchen fire suppression system Again, sold under our past kitchen guard brand, and we, we've, we've got lots of other applications that we can cater with this type of technology. So, so yeah, that, that's sort of there's been a lot of uh, product development and a lot of new product certification that we've engaged in over the last few years, and uh, that will continue. So, obviously, every time that we're bringing a guest on, at the moment we're we're checking in on how you're coping in a COVID nineteen. You're a family business, you know. We've spoken a fair bit during this, and uh, and your sister Carol as well is part of the business. I know you guys have been very proactive despite the pandemic. You managed to keep manufacturing going. Can you give us an insight on how you've managed to cope and how you're holding up over recent weeks? Yeah, I mean, look, um, this is a clearly an extremely challenging time for all businesses. I mean, um, we, 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 we operate in an industry that was considered an essential part of support for UK infrastructure. Uh, I mean, in the early days of the shutdown, we were supplying certain products to the uh, Nightingale hospitals, in fact, several of them, in fact. But that obviously... Um, then yeah, the, the demands change. Um, we are working at a reduced capacity because 
Um, you know, again, working in the health and safety industry, we, um, we're serving people who are generally um, into um, property assets. So a lot of the country is shut down, such as the uh, hospitality sector. Then we, we get a lot of feedback that those areas are difficult to access. Um, sometimes they can be accessed in preparation for future opening. Sometimes the landlords really don't want um, that to happen. Yeah, we, we supply to the health service, of course. We supply to council. So, yeah, it's a mixed bag. And um, really, our levels of operation are purely sort of, I, I think, are pretty much the openness of the properties that our customers serve. Uh, so, so yeah, it's it's tough times. I mean, we, we're sort of optimistic that um, things will slowly get back to normal. I mean, we're, we're sort of in a, you know, we're in a good position because we, we, we sort of, you know, we don't owe sort of any money to anybody. So financially, we're a fortunate company. But, but, but like anything, I mean, we are exposed to um, the downside of this and, um, you know, nobody can deny that. So, Craig, you did a really interesting article for us in the last issue of Fire Safety Matters magazine, uh, which you can see online at www.fsmatters.com. But that article, that focused on fire extinguishers and C marking, and, and you raised a really interesting concern. I mean, the first time that you mentioned it to me is while we were out in Dubai Intersect having a drink together, and you said, do you know, do you think this is something that we should raise as an article? And I said, absolutely. I think this will really interest the readers. Can you give us a quick insight into what you covered in that article, please? Yeah, well, sort of very briefly. I mean, I was uh, introduced to um, the, the, the sort of the subject matter when uh, we, as a company, were invited to do a, um, a refurbishment activity on a on a actually another manufacturer's piece of equipment. Well, we we, we didn't get involved, as it turned out, because during our investigations, we found that um, the the process of doing this and supplying equipment to service another uh, product would would compromise the um, the legal directives that we work under when we are dealing with pressure equipment. So broadly speaking, if you and and so as a consequence of that, I started to try and get a reference point because we we have an activity that takes place in our particular industry, which is the refurbishing of fire extinguishers and particularly, high-pressure carbon dioxide fire extinguishers. And there's a whole industry that's built around that. Now, um, what what sort of came out of my own investigations, and and I think this is a problem that is still sitting in the industry full square to be resolved, is that if you you refurbish a piece of pressure equipment that that has been, was originally the subject of the pressure equipment directive and consequently carries a CE mark. If you do one of two things, and very succinctly, it's if you introduce an important change, such as uh, change the valve um, on the product to one that wasn't originally certified, or if you rebrand the product to a brand that is different to the original equipment manufacturer. You assume the responsibilities of a manufacturer and consequently you are obliged to reassess the product under the pressure equipment regulations, which is the UK's interpretation of the European Pressure Equipment Directive. Now, so so consequently, there is a, um, a real... Uh, suspicion and a question mark over whether refurbished product that is currently being sold in the UK has actually 
gone through that process. And it's real, you know, it's a legal question because um, because if the product hasn't been reassessed under the, the requirements of the regulations, then it, it is an illegal product. Um, and it's simply that. Now, I've been, I've raised this quite, well, I'm trying to think when the first time was, it was probably in 2018, and the industry still has not had a satisfactory answer. Um, the, the, the government department, BEIS, which is Business Energy Industrial Strategy, they are the stakeholders. I believe that the, the question resides with them at the moment, but it is definitely something that the industry really needs resolved because the, the, the status of many millions of these items uh, is currently under question. So, yeah, that's the, that's the background to it. I would, for anybody who would like to get um, up to speed on this, I would encourage them to read the article that you published because I think, you know, I'm sort of happy that it sort of brings all the, all the sort of reference points into one place. And I do thank you for the opportunity to publish that article. Um, but I think it's, um, it's a really, really important question that, that the industry still has to answer. Yeah, it's an interesting take and not something that we've covered before, which, you know, we discussed in private before you wrote it for us. Uh, as Craig said, yeah, I really encourage everybody to read it. You can look at it in its true form in the digital version of our magazine and you can go to the digital editions section of fsmatters.com or if you just go into the features section of the magazine, you can read an online version of it there. Craig, I want to just circle back now to, to Jack Tone. What's next in the product pipeline for you guys? Well, we um, we have um, we we we're continuing to develop our um, PAFS range of automatic fire suppression systems. I mean, ongoing. There are sort of perhaps um, projects that I can't reveal just at the moment, but but I actually can share a little exclusive with you, Mark. We've and, and it is quite an important development for our PAFS products. We've just uh, only yesterday received notification that we were, we've achieved a UL listing for the detection tube that we use in all of our products. Now, in certain parts of the world, this is a really key a key sort of component. And uh, so we, while I launch it to you today, it will be communicated very shortly with our complete uh, customer base. But one of the things, one of the main projects that we are involved with at the moment is less a product development, it's more a market development because what, we, what we're doing very, very actively at the moment is we are really looking for good approved distributors for our product. And we, we, we're currently in the very final stages of around about three, well, I think it's three agreements that are actually ready to sign, which are export agreements. Uh, we have another two under discussion. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the projects really that we are perhaps more engaged with just as I speak is to expand the market, the distribution of our product, because because obviously, you know, you have, when you develop a certified product, you know, there's a lot of work goes in there, but then it really means little if the distribution arrangements aren't correct for the product. So um, so that's that's the focus of our activity, just as we speak. We always got a lot going on, and I appreciate you taking time to share that exclusive with us. We're grateful for that, and I wish you all the best of luck, because it sounds like a really interesting innovation for you guys. But in the meantime, if people want to get in touch with you or with Jack Tone, what's the easiest way to do so? Well, the, the general email address is uh, simply sales at jacktone.com. So we keep it quite simple. <laughs> and we do, we do have a... 
um, a specific email address for the suppression systems, which is PAFS, P-A-F-S-S, at jacktone.com. But if there's any doubt, just use the sales at jacktone.com uh, email address. We, we do answer the telephone, so um, that's that's a normal uh, landline number, 01902 There's a lot of information about our products. Uh, in fact, um, we do get complimented on our website quite regularly. So if you go to jacktown.com, there is um, quite a comprehensive overview of the, the all of the products, actually, and uh, you can drill down to the detail. Um, and we would encourage anybody that is interested in of, uh, discussing distribution of the products to to get in touch via any of those channels. Well, it's nice to speak to someone that has such a diverse range of products. Obviously, we're used to talking to detection systems manufacturers, but of course, yours are so much wider. You've got the suppression side, you've got signs and graphics and fire yeah. accessories and fire blankets. So, yeah, thank you for your time today, Craig. It's always great to speak to you and hopefully we'll catch up with you soon. Uh, thank you, Mark. And um, yes, all the best. And uh, yeah, we'll speak soon. Thank you. edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Peter Aldridge, Craig Halford and Warren Spencer for their valued contributions. You can read more on the issues raised here and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website at www.fsmatters.com. We do hope you've enjoyed the content and found it useful. On that note, please do contact us with the details of any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMpodcast. Do make sure you follow us on Twitter at fsmatters underscore mag. As a reminder, the Fire Safety Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. On the next episode, we'll be talking to Andy Scott, Director at Life Safety Solutions Manufacturer, c We'll see you then. Music.